Amen. Thank you. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn in your copy of the New Testament to Acts chapter number 17 this morning. Acts 17. We love the Easter holiday because at long last it is springtime. Or at least it's getting closer. And we love the Easter holiday because there are flowers, at least inside the building. We love the Easter holiday because there are special church services and we spend time with family and friends. And above all, we love the Easter holiday or Resurrection Sunday because Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. However, while we ascribe all good things to this holiday, all things positive to Resurrection Sunday and our Easter celebration, the Apostle Paul actually preached judgment because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the good news is that Jesus is risen. The bad news is that we are now accountable to him and we will be judged by him because he is risen. This morning I've prepared a message from Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, titled, The Reality of the Resurrection. And the reality is we are accountable to the Lord because he has risen. Let me pause briefly for, for prayer and then we'll look at the scripture together. God in heaven, thank you so much for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the, the songs we have sung, the, the music we have heard, the message that has pierced our minds and our hearts in these last moments. But now, God, as we turn to your holy word, as we read of and hear of the preaching of the Apostle Paul at Mars Hill, May we be mindful of the reality of the resurrection and our accountability because of it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the first half of Acts 17, the apostle Paul preached Christ by reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. Paul went into the synagogues of the Jews and he made the case for Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, in doing so, Paul and his companions had a great impact on all those that heard. In Acts 17, verse number six, the Bible tells us that they turned the world upside down. Consequently, the crowds were stirred. Verse number five, verse eight, verse 13, they were stirred up against Paul. And so Paul was forced to leave the cities of Thessalonica and Berea and flee to the city of Athens. Now, In the city of Athens, Paul addressed the intellectuals of the day and called them to repent because Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's begin reading Acts 17, verse number 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, that's that's, uh, Timothy, Silas and Timothy up in verse 15. While Paul waited for his companions at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, that was his mode of operation, and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul's preaching was of Jesus and the resurrection. Look at verse number 19. 
and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus sat high on the, the city, uh, above the city of Athens on a hill, the, the hill of Ares or Mars Hill. It was not far from the Acropolis and the Agora, that's the, the marketplace there, and it served as the highest meeting place for the, the courts in Greece, for the, the civil or the the criminal or the religious matters would be uh, conducted there on Mars Hill or the Areopagus, verse number 19 again. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. Paul's doctrine, according to the end of verse 18, was Jesus and the resurrection. Verse number 20, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean for all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. God is the creator. God is the sovereign. He is transcendent above any and all of his creation. Verse 25, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God is the the life-giving sustainer of all of creation. Verse 26, don't lose me just yet. And he has made from one blood every nation of men. That's instructive to us in a day of ethnic and racial division. Verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his, his offspring. Therefore, Since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. It's not a material uh, matter, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all The end of verse 31, by raising him from the dead. Folks, if you doubt the judgment of God, know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's assurance regarding that judgment. Let me finish the chapter, verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear again, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, an Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I've read an extended portion of of Scripture this morning. It's the, the narrative of Paul's preaching on Mars Hill in the city of Athens. But let me summarize it, make it very simple for us this morning. While Paul spoke of many different themes... I submit that his message could be reduced to this very single proposition and I'm gonna give it to you in three pieces this morning. It's 
Roman numerals numbers one, two, and three in, in your notes. It begins with this, number one, if the resurrection is true. If the resurrection is true, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of all Christianity. If it is not true, Christianity is a sham. It's a scam. It's a fraud. In fact, Paul acknowledged this to the Corinthians when he wrote, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. If Christ is not risen, we are still in our sins. If there is no Easter, folks, what are we doing here this morning? However, if it is true, if the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is a reality, if the resurrection is true, then there are great implications. So how can we know? How can we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Let me give you three arguments. The testimony first of the empty tomb. The testimony of the empty tomb. Now, what is so great about the empty tomb is that nobody disputes it. Even the skeptics and the critics acknowledged that there was a tomb found empty. Nobody could produce the body of Christ after his crucifixion and burial, not the Jewish leaders or the Roman authorities or even the followers of Christ. And so consequently, skeptics and critics have had to try and explain the empty tomb. And so they have some ideas. This is what they propose. And, and I'll give you four of them. They're not subpoints in your notes, but you might capture these in the, the white space or the margin. First, the Roman guards at the tomb stole the body. That, that's the first explanation. Okay, we have an empty tomb. Probably the Roman guards at the tomb stole the body, but this makes no sense because the, the Roman guards had no motive for stealing the body. In fact, quite the contrary, they had every reason to safeguard the tomb against tampering or theft of the body because that was their job and their very lives depended on it. You can read about it in Matthew 27. In fact, in Matthew 27, verse 65, it's so funny to me, Pilate said to the Roman soldiers, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you can. Good luck with that, right? And so they did the best that they could do because that was their marching orders and the detachment of soldiers sealed the stone. They did their best to prevent anyone from stealing the body. The soldiers that were stationed there at the tomb were, were stationed to prevent this very scenario, an empty tomb. So there's the argument that the Roman guards stole the body. There's a second, and that is that the disciples stole the body. And this theory is the theory that the Jewish leaders promoted in Matthew 27 and 28 and then bribed the soldiers to perpetuate. But this makes no sense because the disciples were so confused and depressed and afraid after the death of Jesus. And it's not plausible that they could overpower the the Roman soldiers and move the enormous stone and seize Jesus' body. But rather, in John chapter 20, the disciples themselves were distraught. They were convinced that someone else had stolen their Lord from the tomb. The Roman soldiers didn't steal the body, and Jesus' disciples didn't steal the body. How about this theory, the, the resuscitation theory? resuscitation theory or the swoon theory and this is the idea that Jesus never really died in the first place. He simply swooned. He lost consciousness on the cross. He fainted from exhaustion but later in the cool damp tomb Jesus resuscitated. He rose up. He walked out. But folks, the Romans were experts at crucifixion and to to document and authenticate Jesus' death, 
They pierced his side to fully pronounce him dead. And of course, the blood and the water flowed out there. And to think that he had the strength to move the stone and overpower the Roman guards to escape the grave, it's, it's just not rational. Then there's a fourth explanation, possible explanation for an empty tomb. And that is the unknown tomb. And this idea suggests that the disciples didn't know where the tomb was located and they accidentally went to the wrong place to look for Jesus. But the Gospels make it clear that Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body down from the cross and put it in his own private tomb in a garden near the place of crucifixion. This was not a mass public mass burial ground, but according to the scripture, Jesus' body was prepared for burial according to the custom of the Jews. And the custom of the Jews made that event no small event. There were many participants in the burial of Jesus in that location. And so really none of these ideas adequately explain away the historic reality of the empty tomb. We have the testimony of the empty tomb. We have a a second, and that is um, the post-resurrection appearances give testimony to the empty tomb. In the 40 days after Jesus rose from the grave, before he ascended back into heaven, he appeared to many different people on many different occasions I'll read from, for you here from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas. Who's that? That's Peter. Then by the 12, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then at last of all he was seen by me also. These are the post-resurrection appearances of, of the risen Christ and one of the primary means of establishing facts in a court of law is the testimony of eyewitnesses. And if the stories of independent eyewitnesses collaborate, facts can be established. Reality can be accepted and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is affirmed by the testimony of witnesses. In his book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell wrote this, you can follow on the screen. He says the most drastic way of dismissing the evidence would be to say that these stories were mere fabrications, that they were pure lies. But so far as I know, not a single critic today would take such an attitude. In fact, it would really be impossible an impossible position. Think of the number of witnesses over 500. Think of the character of the witnesses, men and women who gave the world the highest ethical teaching it has ever known and who even on the testimony of their enemies lived it out in their lives. Their, their, their enemies even reported of their testimony and their belief. McDowell goes on to say, think of the psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence and then attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication that they were trying to foist up up upon the world. There's a third evidence or testimony of the empty tomb, and that's, uh, or I'm sorry, of the resurrection, and that is the changed lives of the witnesses. And if there was ever a time for the message of Christianity to be discredited, it would have been at this point early on. 
If there was ever a time for the followers of Jesus to abandon their, their association with him and his teaching, it would have been at this time because Jesus was publicly crucified and now his body is missing. There is an empty tomb. And yet men and women were transformed into bold, courageous witnesses who gave their lives declaring that Jesus was raised from the dead. So then, if the evidences of the resurrection are so compelling and convincing, why don't more people believe that it's true? And I'll tell you why. If Jesus Christ is risen, he will judge the world. Look at verse 31, Acts 17, the end of verse 31. This was Paul's message to the Athenians in Acts 17, verse 31. You see, belief in a resurrection of Jesus isn't an intellectual matter, it's a moral matter. That is to say, if I refuse to believe the reality of the resurrection, I'm not just denying the incident of the resurrection, I'm rebelling against the implications of the resurrection, namely the judgment of God. And so here's the proposition of Paul's sermon in this text. If the resurrection is true, then, number two, then judgment is a certainty. Judgment is a certainty, and that's what Paul is preaching here in the Areopagus on Mars Hill, Acts 17. Look at verse 31 again. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. There are three certainties here I'd like to highlight regarding the judgment of God. First, there will be a certain day. God has appointed it, verse 31, or the ESV translates it fixed. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world. When will that be? Well, if you look at verse 30, Paul acknowledged that God has overlooked the times of ignorance. That is, God has been patient. He's been long-suffering with man to, to give man every opportunity to repent rather than to perish. But folks, the court date has been set. The day is certain. And do not think for a moment that the day of reckoning will not come. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgments. There's a certain day. There's, and that should be letter B, I'm sorry. There's a certain standard. A certain standard. Verse 31, he will judge the world in righteousness. What, what will that be? If, if God judges me by comparing me to others around me, I think I might fare pretty well. Because if I may, I'm actually a pretty good guy. I'm not a bad person. In fact, I'm generally a good person. I I might, in fact, be in the upper percentile of good people in the world. You see, I'm faithful to my wife. I don't abuse my children. I've never been arrested. I filed my taxes on time. They may or may not have been accurate, but I did the best that I could. Folks, I'm a Baptist preacher for crying out loud. What more do you want from me, God, right? But if the standard is comparing me against others, 
That's the wrong standard. But rather the righteous standard by which I will be judged is the standard of God's holiness and God's glory. And when put up against that, I come up short, I miss the mark. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, including me. If I measure myself against the Ten Commandments, I'm found guilty, James 2.10. If I keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, I'm guilty of all. And so I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and the Bible says that my righteousness, the good things that I do, I do the best I can. But my self-righteousness is like a filthy rag to a holy God. He will judge me by his righteous standard. And then third, and this should be letter C of course, a certain man. Verse 31 says that God will judge us by the man whom he has ordained. Who will that be? We don't have time this morning, but if we were to turn to John chapter five, verses 22 to 27, you might wanna put that in the margin there. John chapter five, verse 22 to 27. The Bible tells us that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. He's given the Son authority to execute judgments. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, is that man. If the resurrection is true, then judgment is a certainty. If judgment is a certainty, then what do we do? Look at Acts 17, the end of verse number 30. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. And so this is what I offer you, number three, then repentance is necessary. What does it mean to repent? Does it mean that I I feel bad and I regret and remorse about the wrong that I've done in order to be saved? Does repentance mean that I must kick all the bad habits in my life and reform my lifestyle in order to be saved? Is it some work that I must accomplish to effectuate my own redemption? No, that's not repentance. The term repent or repentance means to, to change one's mind, to turn. So I'm headed in one direction and I turn and I head in the other direction I have repented. And I submit that repentance means to turn from sin and self to the Savior, from unbelief to belief. In fact, I wanna demonstrate repentance to you here in this very text. Consider the responses of Paul's preaching of the resurrection. Look at verse 32a. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, they scoffed, they sneered. There's no way that Jesus rose from the dead. That's impossible, that's ridiculous. I don't believe it. In fact, look back at verse number 18. Verse number 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They refused to hear and heed the preaching of the resurrection. Look at the end of verse 32. The second part of verse 32, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So others were willing to give it a consideration. It's hard to believe in the resurrection of a crucified man, but they were willing to listen to what Paul said. And look at verse 33. So Paul departed from among them, however, some men joined them, and what did they do in verse 34? They believed. 
And I'm convinced that this belief is obedience to the command up at the end of verse number 30. The command that all men everywhere repent was obeyed there in verse 34 when some of them believed. Folks, this morning, I call all men everywhere to repent. That is to turn from unbelief to belief, from sin and self and skepticism and cynicism to the Savior in believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've written there at the top of your notes, the reality of the resurrection isn't just that Jesus Christ is risen. It is that we will answer to him as our judge because he is risen. The children sang a powerful chorus this morning. He is Lord, he is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. Therefore, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Folks, this morning we've done the Easter holiday thing. We've done the the Christian church service thing. And in general, we would all accept the reality of the resurrection. That is the, the facts of the historicity of an empty tomb. But this morning I declare to you the reality of the resurrection is that we are accountable to that risen Lord as our judge. So we must repent. We must turn and believe. And Romans 8 verse 1 then promises there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Matt, this is, this is new to me. I, I, I'm religious, but I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I've never believed. Then I would want that for you this morning, and I would urge you to seek me out. I'll remain down front after the service. You come and find me. Allow me to pray with you and help you to know Jesus Christ risen. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for Paul's powerful preaching on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Lord, I pray for those under the sound of my voice this morning that they might not just hear of an empty tomb, but they might know the power of the resurrected Lord by faith, belief. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.